been listening to the deeply verdant sounds of Groundswell. More tofu munching radio next week. But up next, for the very last time in this time slot, Discovery, the weekly science show. But fear not, dear listeners, because from next week, Discovery can be heard at the new improved hour of 9am Monday morning. So for one last Tuesday night, filled with animal weaponry, a dose of the flu, and all the usual news and goss on Discovery. Look, mate, I know you can do this. Just think of the money, the challenge. Okay, wish me luck. Hi, can I help you? Yeah, I've got a uh, three o'clock appointment. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, here it is. That's a full Brazilian bikini rack. Just come on through. Some people will do just about anything to raise money for the Fred Hollows Foundation See the World Challenge. Raise $4,500 to go on a trip to Vietnam, Nepal, China, or the Northern Territory. To register, call 1-800-352-352 or visit hollows.org. Full terms and conditions on website. Fundraising conditions apply. Our lives are tangled in nets of surveillance, and the war on terror means that we are monitored more and more and more and more and more. On July 17, Surveillance Beyond Privacy will explore and debate surveillance and social control in our society. Topics include DNA tactics, September 11, racial profiling, electronic bodies, and counter-surveillance strategies. Surveillance Beyond Privacy, Wednesday, July 17 at the UTS Faculty of Law, Key Street, Haymarket, 5.30pm. Check out www.citysafe.org and watch the watches. Uh, my name's Michael and I like 2SDR because there's great programs and great giveaways and it's excellent. It's always good to listen to. grain of sand and the heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Welcome to Discovery, the only science show on community radio that isn't afraid to don the propeller beanie and the pocket protector and announce to the world, I'm a science nerd and I'm proud. In this episode, we give you a dose of the flu, we do battle with the animal kingdom, but first, we've got Branwen and Chris, wait, that's me, with all the latest science news. If you've never heard of the atomic element unanoctium, you'd be forgiven on at least two counts. First, coming in at number 118 on the periodic table of the elements, it's the heaviest atom known to science. Second, and this is the crucial bit, it doesn't exist. Not anymore. Not since physicists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory retracted their discovery of unanoctium this week in the journal Physics Review Letters. 
Back in 1999, in a series of experiments involving colliding beams of lead and krypton atoms, the bottoms at the Lawrence Berkeley lab thought they saw the telltale signature of element 118 in the radioactive decay chains that appear when super-heavy atoms fall apart. However, after three years and a good hard look at the data, they've taken it all back. Said the director of Berkeley Lab, Charles Shank, science is self-correcting. If you get the facts wrong, your experiment is not reproducible. There are many lessons here, and the lab will extract all the value it can from this event. A team of researchers at John Hopkins University in the US have identified and successfully tested a potential new treatment for liver cancer in animals. In yesterday's issue of Cancer Research, the scientists report that only cancer cells were killed when the compound 3-bromopyruvate was given to animals or rabbits with experimental liver tumours. A single injection of the compound directly into the artery that feeds the tumour killed a lot of the cancer cells but left healthy liver alone. The researchers compared 3-bromopyruvate to a currently used treatment for human liver cancer called chemoembolization and this process delivers a dose of chemotherapy to the tumour and also blocks off the artery that feeds it. Whereas chemoembolization damaged some sections of healthy liver, 3-bromopyruvate did not. However, before 3-bromopyruvate could be tested in humans, scientists need to learn how normal cells protect themselves, whether the compound causes long-term damage to normal tissues, and how increasing the dose affects the animals. A recent study by behavioural ecologists in the UK and Canada has shown that Canadian farmers in the 19th century had very different lives depending on which month of the year they were born in. For example, women born in northern Quebec province in the month of April had seven less grandkitties on average than those born in June. Now, before you go throw all your money at the guy who sells horoscopes at the market, the Devon House, we're talking about seasons here. And what you need to remember is that to be born in April in Quebec, you were conceived right at the start of the harvest season. Women would work long hours in the fields throughout the first months of pregnancy. And according to ecologist Viri Lumar of the University of Cambridge, that sort of thing would really take it out of you and your baby. A tough pregnancy could lead to a weaker child who would go on to have fewer children of her own as a result. But seven fewer grandchildren. According to Lamar, that's an enormous and really quite surprising effect. She says even in present-day populations, longevity and height can depend on time of birth. However, since life has generally improved since the 19th century, the effects are much weaker today than in pre-industrial times. Attendees at the Food, Energy and Population Conference in Adelaide last Saturday would have heard Syro Land and Water Chief John Williams calling for a revolution in Australia's land use. Williams believes that population pressure will play a major role in the future of our old, flat, salty landscape and that to just keep up with present local and export demand for food and crop production, we must pioneer the development of a new landscape. He says that since the European settlement, the hydrology of the Australian landscape has been radically changed, especially by the large-scale clearing of native vegetation and its replacement with annual crops and pastures. Therefore, it is no surprise to learn that we are already losing healthy rivers and productive farmland, as well as the essential areas of native vegetation. There's no quick technological fix for the problems Australia's farmers are facing, and no single land use option will halt the growth of salinity and the loss of native biodiversity. 
So the new landscape will have to be made up of a mosaic of tree crops, mixed perennial annual cropping systems and significant areas devoted to native vegetation. The exact mix of these elements is a question that urgently needs to be addressed. And finally, the polio virus, well, it's nothing new. It's been around for about as long as there's been something for it to invade. But in a recent edition of the journal Science, researchers at the State University of New York announced that they have created polio virus from scratch by assembling its DNA piece by piece from the sequenced polio genome and then growing the virus in the lab. The assembled virus was able to invade live mouse cells in the laboratory, every bit as infectious as normal polio. The feat is seen both as a triumph and as a bit of a worry by scientists around the globe. Virologist Olin Q of the US Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, has called the work a beautiful study. The steps in growing the virus, from sequencing the genome to assembling the DNA from that sequence, to growing the virus itself, They've all been done before, but Q says this is the first time that they've been all put together to create a virus truly from scratch. Eckhard Wimmer of the State University team thinks their work provides a warning about the future of bioterrorism. Since the DNA sequences of viruses such as HIV and Ebola are widely available on the internet, Wimmer says we should be concerned about the process being used for nefarious purposes in the future. Now a subject dear to many people's noses, lungs, hearts and general health, the flu. In the spirit of scientific inquiry, Tim Baines went all the way and caught the flu last weekend. Boy is that guy dedicated. To the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, millions of people get the flu each year. 114,000 people in the United States per year are admitted to hospital because of the flu, and an average of about 20,000 Americans die from the flu annually. Now, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has all but approved a new influenza vaccine delivered as a nasal spray. The inventor of the novel nasal delivery system, Hunain Masab, has spent more than four decades researching flu vaccines at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Massab has been inspired over the many years by his mentor, Dr. Thomas Francis Jr., who had overseen the U.S. Army's flu vaccine program during World War II and the polio vaccine clinical trials. Over 40 years, Dr. Massab has built on one finding after another before ultimately coming to the approach used in a cold-adapted, live-attenuated, trivalent influenza virus vaccine. So, what the hell does all that mean? Well, unlike traditional flu shots, which are made from killed viruses, the new vaccine is designed with weakened live viruses that are modified to grow in the cooler nasal passages, but not in the warmer lungs where flu develops. This way helps the recipient develop immunity at the site where the flu virus typically enters the body, the nose. Trivalent means it would include three strains of the flu virus because multiple strains of influenza virus circulate in the population every year. Oh, don't I know that now. The immune response is different to each of those three strains, so an effective vaccine gives protection against each. 
Okay, so here's some flu facts. Firstly, the flu is a virus, which means it's a little bundle of malignant proteins and RNA that can only replicate by infecting a host. The flu is not a bacterium like Streptococcus or Salmonella that are capable of reproducing on their own. This also means that antibiotics like penicillin won't cure you of the flu. The flu is spread or transmitted when a person who has the flu coughs, sneezes or speaks and sends the virus into the air and other people inhale the virus. The virus enters the nose, throat or lungs of a person and begins to multiply, causing symptoms of the flu. More rarely, the flu may be spread when a person touches a surface that has flu viruses on it. A person can spread the flu starting one day before they feel sick. Adults can continue to pass the flu virus to others for another three to seven days after symptoms start. Children can pass the virus for longer than seven days. Symptoms start one to four days after the virus enters the body. Some persons can be infected with the flu virus but have no symptoms. Lucky bastards. But those persons Anyone can get the flu, even healthy people, and serious problems from flu can happen at any age. People particularly at risk should, who should consider a flu shot are persons aged older than 50 years and residents of nursing homes, adults and children over 6 months of age who have chronic heart or lung conditions, including asthma, adults and children over 6 months of age who need regular medical care or had to be in a hospital because of a metabolic disease uh, like chronic kidney disease, diabetes or HIV. Also, children and teenagers who are on long-term aspirin therapy and women who will be more than three months pregnant during a flu season. So, how do you know if you have the flu? You've got to be kidding, right? I mean, you feel like death warmed up. Well, your respiratory illness might be the flu if you have a sudden onset of body aches, fever and respiratory symptoms and your illness occurs during the winter months. However, during this time, other respiratory illnesses can cause similar symptoms and the flu can be caught at any time of the year. It is impossible to tell for sure if you have the flu based on symptoms alone. Doctors can perform tests to see if you have the flu if you are in the first few days of your illness. So what should you do if you get the flu? Rest, drink plenty of fluids, avoid using alcohol and tobacco, and take medication to relieve the symptoms. That was Tim Baines doing some first-hand frontline research on the flu. You're listening to Discovery. Still to come, Lock Watmore gets mean and dirty with animal weaponry.
Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum, titillated about everything fascinating in the world. And if you want to blow your brain just like I've blown mine, listen to the Discovery Channel. Last week we gave you science in the military. This week we're going to give you weapons in zoology. Our resident Dr. Strangelove, Lachlan Watmore, is now here to horrify you with some examples of dreadful weaponry in the animal kingdom. Something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down oh, you got to love a little Buffalo Springfield from time to time Hi folks, it's me, <coughs> again. Now, as uh, Chris just said, last week was the military, but I couldn't go any further without just a little more weaponry because as everyone will tell you around here, I can talk about weapons until the cows come home. And I can even talk about a cow's weapons. Now, I've got a couple of examples from the animal kingdom of some pretty fearsome stuff uh, used in various aspects of, say, defence, predation, uh, vying for mates and things like that. Animals have actually got quite a huge variety of weapons for just those reasons. If everyone thinks that you know, animals don't fight each other or they don't fight predators or they don't fight prey, well, they're completely wrong. So let's start off, of course, with the invertebrates, who are, as we all know, superior to the vertebrates. Let's go to the uh, boxing mantis shrimps. They're fascinating little uh, crustacea. Sort of like uh, usual shrimps, uh, except they've got enormous forelimbs, like other mantis shrimps. Unlike other mantis shrimps, though, boxing mantis shrimps have got large forelimbs with bulbous ends, which look very, very much like boxing gloves. And they're good for both predation and defence. Uh, if you have a look at David Attenborough's The Trials of Life, which is a television show, uh, sort of a behavioural study, you can see a male mantis shrimp attempting to mate with a female mantis shrimp, which is about the most dangerous thing that he can do, because she thinks that he's trying to take over his burrow. And if he gets in there, she's going to land a punch right in the middle of his carapace, which will crack it wide open and kill him as all his internal fluids leak out. The thing is, though, he's got to pass on his genes, and she does too, she just doesn't know it. So in order to get in there, he has to keep well away from these huge bulbous boxing um, forelimbs, which can be a very, very dangerous thing indeed. And uh, if you listen to the sound of this, you can hear the actual impact of it, which goes sort of tock, tock, tock. That's slightly amplified, I understand, but it is an incredibly powerful punch. Moving along from there, still in the invertebrate world, we go to Eunice Aphrodite, which is an errant carnivorous polychaete. What the heck is that? Well, a polychaete is a marine worm. Polychaetes uh, are also covered, uh, I'm sorry, another type of a worm is of course the earthworm, but marine worms are very different to earthworms because they swim rather than burrow. Earthworms have to have smooth flanks, so they've got very small parapodia, which is sort of leg-like fleshy extensions. By contrast, marine polychaetes have got enormous parapodia, which act as uh, paddles for them swimming with. And if you have a look at Eunice Aphrodite under a dissecting microscope and check out its jaws, you'll get a very, very good idea of where they got the idea for the uh, alien in all the alien films. You know those big bipedal lobsters with the irreversible pharynxes? Basically, a carnivorous errant polychaete has got an explosive pharynx. What that means is that it explosively turns its mouth and part of its throat inside out. Its jaws, unlike us, are not at the start of its mouth, but actually way back in its throat. And 
uh, suddenly exposes these enormous, fearsome jaws, just like the alien in the Alien films. Errant polychaetes can have up to six jaws, some of them actually toxic. It goes out so fast because it's got to grab a prey item. It goes out so fast you've actually got to film it to time it. You can't see it with the naked eye. You're not making this up. I am not making this up at all. It's all written down. Can you turn on his mic? <laughs> okay. Hey, Chris. Oh, sorry, I just had to say something. I'm not making that up at all. Okay. Go and look it up if you don't believe me. It's no. true. And I can also say that the largest specimen of Eunice Aphrodite was found right here in Sydney when two scuba divers turned over a rock and found one that was three metres long. And, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. It was pretty scary, actually. The sort of animal that makes, as you might say, Chris, makes jaws look like a fish. Anyway, moving along from Eunice Aphrodite, we now come to an entire phylum. A phylum is a sort of large group of animals. It's a taxonomic level just under that of kingdom. The phylum Cnidaria is defined by the weapons that it has. Phylum Cnidaria includes corals, jellyfish and blue bottles. All those, basically those little marine stingers that can <coughs> sting you. Cnidarian weapons are also called nematocysts and they're also called nidocytes. You choose whichever word you want to use. And there's a huge variety of types and they're not just for stinging either. If you put your finger into an anemone on the seashore, it feels sticky. And that's because the poor beast is actually firing off adhesive nidocytes to try and capture your finger because it thinks it's got a big juicy meal. Actually, anemones don't think at all because they don't have brains. But they do have an elementary nervous system. And if you whack your finger in there, it sort of goes... And tries to grab onto you because it's got all these adhesive nidocytes which are firing. <laughs> Sorry, one night only. <laughs> now, you'll probably, anyone who, out there who's ever been stung by a blue bottle, I've never actually been stung by one. Yeah, Chris, you have? Mm. No, no. Anyone else in the studio been stung by a blue bottle? No, I like Chris going first. Okay, well, <laughs> one, one at a time, Chris, what was the pain like? Um, unrepeatable on community radio. Tim? I've never been stung, but a bull ant was really painful if that's any comparison. Yeah, it's it's close, got to include bull ants. Okay. Mm. Well, as you know, as, as Chris has just told us, a blue bottle sting hurts. Now, a box jellyfish sting really hurts. People have actually passed out from the pain of a box jellyfish sting. Um, a box jellyfish is a very, very large cnidarian, as you know. It comes from the order Cubozoa because it's in its sort of cubic shape rather than your classic bell shape that a, a jellyfish would be. And as I'm sure a lot of folks out there know, it's got these long trailing tentacles which can be up to 20 metres long. And these tentacles, particularly the, the nidocytes inside them, have, been, have evolved to capture fish. Now fish, like us, are vertebrates, you know, that really wimpy part of the animal kingdom. A vertebrate, um, well, you know, vertebrates have got a, a number of things in common. Therefore, a poison which has evolved to capture fish actually works very, very well on a human being. And um, that's Coronex for you. So the phylum Cnidaria has got a magnificent variety of, of weapons, and never let it be said that the Cnidarians are simple creatures. That's a load. Okay, moving on from Cnidaria, we've got the phylum Mollusca. Have you ever seen 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Used to, I used to have the long playing record. Is there an octopus record. in it somewhere? There was a giant squid a in giant it somewhere. Squid. Now, giant squid, as we know, are cephalopods, uh, like octopuses and squid and other types of cuttlefish. Cephalopods, as I'm sure everyone knows, well, I know anyway, uh, are mollusks. And mollusks have got interesting weapons. Uh, just about every single mollusk species has got what's called a radula, which is a sort of ribbon of teeth, which is held taut by a thing called an odontophore. The odontophore pushes out the radula, kind of like a small uh, organic bandsaw. Uh, most, uh, a lot of radulas are used uh, by herbivorous snails uh, simply to scrape the rock. For example, you've got some sort of grazing gastropod down on the rock platform. It just scrapes up a bit of the, the seaweed and um, eats it and everything, and that's all fine. But when it starts to get really disgusting is when you look at whelks. 
in particular the Mulberry Welk, Moral and Margin Alba. Mulberry Welk comes up to a barnacle, sits on it, I think that's the worst part, starts scraping at it with its radula, tears away a bit of the shell, then vomits digestive enzymes into the shell of the barnacle, sort of half digests it into a sort of soup that's an external digestion, by the way, and then sucks the whole thing up like you do with some minestrone. Geez, I'm glad I came in tonight. Yeah, I thought so. You know, you, you guys have all eaten, haven't you? Yeah. I hope everyone out there likes as well. Okay. Uh, so that's with Welks. Now, if you go to the giant squid, you've not only got the radula, you've also got an enormous chitinous beak. So you can not only get bitten by a giant squid, you can also get scraped to death by the radula. So that's some pretty nasty uh, weapons there. Now, moving on, this is my favourite uh, example for tonight. It's the bombardier beetle. And I've got to go to a uh, text by the great Carl Krasnick, you know the guy, Dr. Carl. He wrote a fantastic book called Bizarre Moments in Science, which is published by ABC Publishing. Go and get it, read it, it's fantastic. And he says, the bombardier beetle is a few centimetres long, has a little nozzle at the back end of its body. Nozzle can point in any direction, just like the turret on a tank, and it squirts out a boiling chemical spray. The bombardier beetle uses the famous binary chemical weapon system, mixes two fairly mild chemicals together to make one really nasty chemical. And interestingly, humans do that too when they're making chemical weapons. Now buried inside the bomb uh, body of the bombardier beetle is the system, two separate hollow storage tanks, thin walls, quite floppy. One is filled with hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinones, while the other is filled with chemicals called oxidases. When they are squirted out the back of the bombardier beetle, the chemicals meet each other and they go through a violent explosive reaction that gives off a lot of energy. Hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinones, so quinones, the energy that's left over heats up the benzoquinones to 100 degrees Celsius, turns them into hot gas, and it comes out in something like 500 pulses a second, each pulse lasting about 2 uh, milliseconds long. So never let it be said that just the only weapons in the animal kingdom are purely uh, cutting or, or slashing weapons. The bombardier beetle is an excellent example of chemical weapons, and you might as well throw in a bit of fire with that. That's about all I've got to say. As I said, I can talk all night about this, but we're pressed for time. So thanks a lot for listening. I, I, just, wanted to, I yeah. just wanted to throw in that um, yeah. for fans out there, uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Mundine is going to be taking on a boxing shrimp at the Gold Coast next week. So, uh, <laughs> worth tuning in for that one. I'll give you 10 to 1 on the boxing shrimp. Done. Those of you listening to Discovery on the Community Radio Association of Australia satellite for a second. All right, Sydney listeners on 2SER, don't tune in this time next week because we won't be here. Instead, next Monday at 9am, point your radio towards 2SER and the new improved Discovery time slot. That's 9am next Monday. All right, everyone else, come back. Come back. You've been listening to Lachlan Watmore. Tim Baines and Brandon Morgan and Gina Satori has played Panel Goddess once again. Tim Baines has produced this whole shebang. I'm Chris Stewart. Join us next week for more science-flavoured goodness on Discovery. Bye now.